the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good food fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he, came, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. Thank you, Mew, for reading that word. Before I begin, I just want to just relay my gratitude for you, Risen Hope. I'm very grateful for this church. As Tim mentioned, I am currently doing an internship at Covenant Fellowship, but in many ways, I see Risen Hope as my second home, really because you house my, fa my family members right now, so the Baines, and in many ways we've been able to build with a number of people here. And so as I've been looking at this message, looking at this Matthew 3, I've been very excited because I could actually think about faces, faces that I know, faces and people that I've grown to care for, and love and so i just want to thank you for that i want to thank you for your investment in us 
Joel said it some time ago that when we plant a church in Jamaica, we will be standing on the shoulders of and sacrifice of many. And you are some of those people. You are partnering in the work that God is doing in Jamaica. So I just want to thank you for that. So as we look at God's word, let, let me pray. Father, as we've read your word, may the entrance of your word bring light and understanding to us today. May your spirit direct us. May your word be a lamp unto our feet. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I want you to imagine with me, you know, going to a concert for your favorite artist. Maybe for some of you, that might be a Lecrae, uh, Kerry Joby. Um, maybe many won't admit it, but that might be for you a Taylor Swift. But when you go to an event like this, before the headliner comes on, you tend to see a performance from another artist. They call that the opening act. You know, sometimes this is a fairly unknown artist or a band who isn't just there to fill time or fill space. While they're not the star of the show, their purpose is quite important. This opening act, their performance serves to warm up and prepare the audience, making the listener appropriately excited and enthusiastic for the headliner. Very often these acts may have very similar musical styles to the artist's opening for. This too in many ways allows the audience to be made ready for the very content and the very songs that they're soon going to hear from the main performer. And you know that the opening act was effective. When you hear them finish, you say to yourself, wow, I cannot wait for the main performance. In the text that we read this morning, Matthew introduces for us a character that in many ways serves as an opening act. In chapter 3, we learn the details of a man named John the Baptist, but we don't get to hear his background right now. But don't get it twisted. The main act is Jesus. The main act, the main performer hasn't changed. Though it will take us Going to verse 13 before Jesus steps onto the stage. Everything that's said about John is designed to prepare us for the coming of the mightier one. John the Baptist is Jesus' opening act. And so no detail mention is random. No detail is out of place. From John's very location, from his whole manner, his dress, his very methods, his message. It's all described to set the stage for something very monumental that's going to happen. For we are about to see the king. The featured act is King Jesus. And before he's brought onto the stage, John's ministry is serving to lay out for us how we can be ready for that. How the coming of the king calls our attention and demands our very response. Something significant has happened and it requires not simply our acknowledgement, not simply, oh, that's, that's cool, 
it requires action. John's announcement to them of this coming king is a message today for us that he brings. With his mission, he wants to prepare us. He wants to prepare our hearts to hear the king and respond to him. And so, as you look at the text, we're going to look at it in three parts. The first part we're going to see in verses 1 to 6, John's prophetic manner. In verses 7 to 12, we're going to look at this parallel message. And verses 13 to 17, John's profound meeting. And so, let's look at verses 1 to 6. Matthew, Matthew begins the verse, by the way, in a very interesting way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. I mean, who? Again, we get no introduction to this man, unlike the Gospel of Luke that would describe how he was born and all of these interesting facts. We simply see him appear onto the stage almost mysteriously. What I find very intriguing about that, when you look at the commentators, they point out that the very phrase in those days, the original language was a very common phrase in the Old Testament. And in many ways, it would express this sort of prophetic notion, especially concerning prophecies concerning the future. That's in those days. This is how they would introduce it. And Matthew's audience would probably even notice a very subtlety in the very approach. Very similar to how Elijah is introduced. In 1 Kings 17 verse 1, before we're hearing a lot of other things and all of a sudden we see Elijah just pop up on the stage. In the days Elijah. A prophet who in so many ways is very similar to John the Baptist. I mean, look at verse 4. The very mention of his fashion sense. I mean, what's that about? Garments of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. No doubt the original readers would have made a connection. Wait, isn't that how Elijah dressed? That's how Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1 verse 18. The very same description. Garments of hair, a leather belt around his waist. This is not a random statement. Even the very location, verse 1, he came preaching in the wilderness. This is more than a simple geographical reference. Matthew is laying out for his reader this very prophetic theme. Many people in, the, in those days would, had an expectation of a great leader who would come to bring deliverance from his people from the wilderness, in this sort of new exodus, in the wilderness. It was in the wilderness following God's deliverance from Egypt where God would meet with his people. It was in the wilderness on Mount Sinai where his people would hear God's voice, his, their own deliverer speaking to them. In the wilderness, miracles of provision, Manna from heaven, mind-boggling victories from enemies, supernatural leading, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It's in the wilderness where God would meet with his people once more. In, in verse 3, Matthew 
confirms how John the Baptist is indeed meant to evoke this prophetic expectation. It says, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That passage being quoted is Isaiah 40, verse 3. And that would quickly get the attention again of the Jewish readers. Isn't that the prophecy of the new Exodus? When God would again deliver his people? When the glory of the Lord shall be revealed? As the verse continues in Isaiah 40, verse 5 and 6. This is a decisive moment for the people. After 400 years of silence, it seems that a prophet is on the scene. A prophet is on the scene. The very last prophet that they heard was in Malachi. And that prophet would speak of an Elijah to come. And it seems that, wait, is, is this a prophet? Is this the prophet to come? That would certainly serve to get their attention. And it certainly serves to get our attention right now. And what does this prophet say? What is he saying? He prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. It's a strange statement, but this is a very old picture. It, it pointed to a time when a king would travel to a new region and he would first send people ahead of him to prepare the way for his arrival. That would require some adjustment to the terrain making straight paths, bumpy roads being made flat, potholes being filled, because the king is going to travel on it. You have to prepare the way. You know, we got a very similar description of that as Jamaicans in 2015, when we had a visit from the then president at the time, Barack Obama. Um, Obama was coming for a one-day visit and we were only given three weeks um, notice of this and it was very amazing what we saw in three weeks we saw roads that were filled with potholes for months and years made smooth in weeks <laughs> routes where the presidents would drive on were all of a sudden beautified Fresh coat of paint, beautiful flowers and plants. Initiatives were even implemented to strengthen security around the president's visit. And not, not alone his visit, but the entire um, country. Crime was down. And so even if it was just for a day, the country with road problems, the country with a serious crime issue was the smoothest and safest place to be in the world. <laughs> but this is what we are seeing here. Someone greater has taken a journey that has never been taken before. This is not just some king of a region. This is not just a president of a country. This is the ruler of the universe. The eternal God is sending his beloved son out of heaven down to this earth. God is about to enter into human history in a very decisive way. 
the king has come. And this not only requires our attention, but it requires a very particular response. It requires our preparation. It requires a response. And what is that response? Verse 2 says it quite plainly. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is where now we can transition into verse 7 to 11, this parallel message. John the Baptist was not only a forerunner for Christ. In many ways, he would foreshadow Christ's very own message. Later in this gospel, we're going to see Jesus begin his public message in a very similar way. If you look at chapter 4, verse 17, he too is going to start by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew seems to want to make that connection very clear for his readers. As he lays out even the very discourse that John is going to be having with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he expounds on the implication of this message in a way that Jesus will soon repeat in a very light manner. Now, we won't have the time to do that, but if you can make notes, I, as you continue through the book, I want you to look out for those parallels. So for example, um, verses 7, where we hear the very infamous statement, you brood of vipers. John had a very strong mouth on him. But we would see Jesus in a very like manner say that in chapter 23, verse 33, when he's talking about the seven woes to the, of the, to the scribes and the Pharisees. Even verses 8 and 10, where John is going to speak about this call to bear fruit and the consequences of not doing so, Jesus will in chapter 7, 16 to 20, on the Sermon on the Mount, speak in the very light manner about how you recognize false prophets. You will know them by their fruit. Or even verse 12, this discussion of the gathering of the wheat and the burning of the chaff. In chapter 13, when Jesus is at the seaside and eventually goes on the boat, he's going to give parables, and in one of those parables, the parable of the weeds, he speaks in a very similar manner. Even with the contrast of the baptism, I'm going to baptize you with water. But there's one who will come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. John, with his message, is creating a pattern that will be played out greater and in its fullness with Jesus' ministry. So this parallel message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Really what that's saying to us, listen, the rule, the reign of God is coming on earth. That very things that the prophet had spoken about is here. It's here in Christ. This then demands our conformity to the king's desires and commands. This requires our repentance. While many might sit and argue about what they understand repentance to mean, is it simply a change of mind? Is it simply confessing one's sin? 
This word is something understood by Matthew's Jewish audience. This call to repent was no different than what they would have heard from their Old Testament prophets. This call to turn back to their God. Return to the covenant of Yahweh. A call not to simply feel sorry for your sins. Not merely an intellectual change. But a radical transformation of the entire person. A turnaround that involves both mind and action. Repentance causes us to turn from our own autonomy, our own desire to control our own lives, our own desire to be king and ruler, and then to turn and trust in the king who has come. This is what repentance looks like. This is what it looks like to prepare for the coming of the king. And so, even in verses 7 to 11, we see even some implications of repentance that I, I think is important for us to lay out. This call for repentance, first of all, is universal. It's universal. One of the very intriguing things about this account is the fact that John's very method of baptism for the sake of repentance, it communicates a lot. Baptism was not a new thing. Baptism was practiced, especially by the Jews and in Judaism. What would happen if you were a Gentile or a pagan and you wanted to convert to Judaism? You would repent and be baptized. It's almost like saying, I am an outsider. I renounce my former ways and I'm now embracing the faith in the one true God, the God of Israel. That, that's something that the Gentiles would have done. But I don't know if you notice this. Here, John treats Jewish and Gentile the same. He's not simply saying, you Gentiles, come and be baptized. No, he's saying, Jew, Gentile, all must come before the king humbly and be baptized. In his baptism... You see even this universal nature of the repentance that God is calling us to. It really doesn't matter your background. And so this is why John will say to them, when they're saying, but we are children of Abraham. Listen, don't say that. Still, you need to repent. You can't put your trust or faith in any religious stock that you have. Which family you were born in, which church you went to. None of these things matter. None of those things will save you. Be you an adult or a child. Be you male or female. Be you black or white. Be you rich or poor. Be you pastor or the visitor. Be you a Jamaican or an American. We all need to repent. This call is universal. Another implication we see of repentance that's said here in verses 8 especially is that the call to repentance is a lifestyle. John's message is a reminder that repentance is not simply something we did. It's something we do. We are called to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. 
And that means we don't repent only once at the start of our Christian life and then go on our merry way. It's a daily realizing our desperate state and humbly coming to our King who has graciously pardoned us. This is a message we really need to hear. We need to hear. Even as I think about my own country and going back to Jamaica, one of the things, just, just facts that you probably don't know, we are a people of 2.8 million who 86% claim to be Christian. If you attend any of the schools in our country, you're going to typically see your schools start all in very similar ways. We're going to start with devotions. We're going to sing some of those medleys you heard today. We are going to open the scriptures and someone is going to give a word. If you come to any of our movies, you are going to be greeted surprisingly by the national anthem. This happens all the time. At the very beginning, before you go and watch your Black Panther, we're going to hear... We're going to hear the anthem. And one of the intriguing things about our anthem, it really is a prayer. A prayer to the eternal Father to bless our land, to guide us with your mighty hand, to keep us free from evil powers, and to be our light through countless hours. A prayer to God. I mean, this must be a Christian nation, right? Yet, we are fifth murder capital in the world. With 80% of our people being born out of wedlock. While I, don't, I wouldn't presume to know much about America even now, I wonder how similar or how you could identify with that situation. We are Christians by faith alone. We are Christians by grace alone, in Jesus alone. But we are not Christians by name alone. The Christian life is marked by daily turning from ourselves and looking to the King Jesus. Seeing in our actions, in our ideas, in our pursuits, in our goals, in our dreams, in our visions. The King intends to be Lord of all. And while it's not about perfection, it's certainly about direction. The realities of our humanity means we are faced with many opportunities to turn from ourselves and look to God. I know I daily need to turn from my own pride. I daily need to turn from my own self-sufficiency. I need to turn from my own self-pity. The tendency to declare that, listen, the king can't deal with my issues. Sorry, I went into some sort of patois there. The king is unable to deal with my issues. That's what I said. I need to turn again from my desire to be self-reliant, to be in control, to be in control of my own life and my own destiny. We daily need to repent, risen hope. A last implication that we see of repentance is that this call to repentance 
is actually rooted in grace. It's not as if John looked on us and said, if you repent, then the kingdom of heaven will come. No, no. It, the grace of God has appeared. The kingdom has come in the one who is here to seek and save the lost. In light of that, repent. The foundation of repentance is the mercy of God. Even as John the Baptist speaks about this baptism in verse 11, I, I, I want you to see him communicating the very mercy of God. John the Baptist is saying, you know, I who baptize only with water, I am making a way for the king who will baptize you with the Spirit. That thing that in the Old Testament before, just a few people would have experienced the Holy Spirit falling on them. Now, the prophets would speak of a time when all of God's people will receive the Spirit of God. And what you see here is that really, now the King has come and he's bringing the very tools we need to bear fruit of repentance. With his coming, he's giving us the very tools we need to repent. We can now bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because in his coming, he has granted us all we need for life and godliness. After all, isn't it the fruit of the spirit that we must bear? Yet he will give us his spirit. With the arrival of the kingdom, it means salvation is here. But it also means that judgment is near. In verses 10 to 12, John speaks very plainly about the reality of judgment in light of his coming. This king who will separate wheat from chaff. That's that constant reminder that in his divine visitation, he is also coming to establish justice, to crush his opposition and renew this very world that he, he owns and rules. This constant awareness that God's kingdom has come and this expectation of his return is also motivation for us to bear fruit, saints. It is, you know, one of the main arguments that Paul makes as it relates to walking out our sanctification, which really is bearing fruit, is because Christ has returned. I'd love you to look at 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10. It says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, risen hope, when he comes, we all will have to give an account. Whether you be a believer, whether you be an unbeliever, your king is coming back. And therefore, we must take it and make it our aim to please him. And so here's what we see so far. John has prophetically proclaimed that the king has come and the very contents of his message, it demands a response. That response is our complete Repentance. 
But this king, this king, this king does not leave it simply by sending a messenger. He doesn't just sit there and say, yeah, go, go tell them. He does not send a proxy alone. This king doesn't simply deliver his harsh verdict and stands there. He comes to us. And so this is where we see in verse 13, this profound meeting. Matthew at verse 13 now brings onto the stage the star of the show. Here we get a very unique interaction between John and Jesus. And what is very interesting here, this is only seen, this type of interaction is only seen here in Matthew. In this interaction, we hear Jesus and John talk about this baptism. Jesus comes to be baptized and John is taken aback. Me? Baptize you? No, no, no. no. I need to be baptized by you. And honestly, it's very understandable. It's very understandable because after all, John has been baptizing before, but now before him stands the one who is coming with the mightier baptism. Of course, baptize me. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, a call to turn from our sinful ways and then to turn to the ways of God. You are the son of God. What sins are you turning from? Baptize me. But this is where Jesus says in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus has no sin and therefore needs no repentance. Yet, he identifies with his sinful people. This is what the baptism is saying. In the midst of our self-sufficiency, our own pride, our own self-harm, our gluttony, our anger, our selfishness, our addictions, our fears, our pornography, our lies, our deceit. In his baptism, Jesus sees us in our sin and in our depths and chooses to stand in solidarity with us. Our righteous and obedient representative. You know, as Tim in his first message says, this is a king for the people. I love how Grant Osborne puts it. He says, he does not need to repent. But by submitting to baptism, Jesus begins his messianic work by identifying with the human need and providing the means by which it can be accomplished. By fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus is showing that he is the obedient son who keeps the father's righteous will. He is the suffering servant who carries out God's righteous plan for salvation for all who would turn to him in repentance and faith. This is a king from the very beginning of his ministry who will act on behalf of his people. From the very beginning, he will identify with us at our greatest need. We, disloyal subjects who, because of our own desire to rule, deserve the wrath of the king. Yet this king will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
this is a king. That will be the very example of what he's asking his people to do. He will first dedicate himself to the service of the Father and fulfill all the righteous demands of the law on our behalf. Not simply through his baptism that we get to see today, but through his obedient life. Through his obedient life unto the cross for our sins. And through his resurrection. And then we see just this very glorious thing in verses 16 to 17. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew seeks to remind us about just the significance of this moment. The Spirit descending on Christ in a very public manner. Displaying what Isaiah would prophesy in Isaiah 61 verse 1. How the Spirit of the Lord will anoint the Messiah to bring good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. How this voice from heaven will validate Christ as the suffering servant spoken about in Isaiah 42 verse 1. But his spirit Put his spirit upon him that he will bring forth justice to the nation. In many ways, this is Jesus' coronation day. The day that King Jesus is formally crowned. And how Psalm 2, 6-7 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Risen hope, the king has come. The king has come. And even in that interaction, we see it. How the son obeys. The spirit anoints. And then the father speaks. What a significant moment. Even more. When was the last time... All the people would hear a voice from heaven. Was it not on Mount Sinai? Was it not on Mount Sinai when God would initiate a relationship with his people and then give them commands to follow? And then we see it here again. God speaking in a very definitive way, in a very public way, in front of the people for people to hear and see. Certainly, this would validate the very message that Christ will preach. While Matthew doesn't say it here, later we're going to see in the garden with the disciples where they will hear this voice again in Matthew 17, verse 5. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, in this account, it really sets the stage for the things that are going to come in Jesus' ministry. His own sermon on the mount, 
that he will we'll see in chapter 5 where God will be speaking to his people once again upon the mountain. Long ago, Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 2 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, a, a passage like this certainly calls for our attention. It certainly calls for us to respond. Risen hope, it's calling your attention. As you continue in this series, I want to encourage you that as you read and as you pray over this book, may you listen with such eagerness and anticipation because the king has come and the king has much to say to his people. Risen hope, it, it demands a response. It demands our repentance. That of a daily turning away from ourselves and turning to him, to Jesus, the mightier one, the greater one, who is able to help us. Our king demands our repentance and is able to empower us to turn to him. We must respond rightly because the king has come and the king is coming again. John the Baptist certainly fulfilled his role effectively as this opening act, preparing the way for Christ. His message continues to us today. And as George Eldon says, as it relates to the kingdom, the redemptive reign of God has already come into human history in the person and mission of Jesus to overcome evil, to deliver people from its power, and to bring them to the blessing of God's reign. Risen hope, the King has come, and Christ has won. Nothing then can stay the same. We must be prepared. We must respond to this gracious King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have come, that you have come mightily, and with your coming, you have given us all we need to repent. You have given us the promise of your spirit, that if we turn to you, you would graciously give us your spirit. That will allow us to indeed bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. I pray today that this awareness that you have come and this awareness that you are coming again will continue to motivate us as a church and as a people. The King has come, and you will come again, and we eagerly anticipate that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.